When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to the family with Ralph W. Basham, MD, Hackmaster, Alex Brandt, Bernard Rasmussen, Catherine Brandt, Andy Brandt Bernard, and Cassie Schrader. We will talk to Michael Corda, passing a memoir of love and death, our special guest next with the family. Recently, the four Walzer dealerships in Burnsville, Walzer Subaru, Walzer Honda, Walzer Nissan, and Walzer Mazda encountered a hailstorm. A justice flew in from around the U.S. to handle a claim on what will be over 2,500 new and used cars. They've drastically reduced the pricing on these vehicles, and there are some wonderful bargains available. But here's the deal. I normally hate the hurry-these-won't-last style of marketing, but in this case, it is true. It's not like they'll go into the back lot at night with hammers and make more. I also usually tell people to check them out online, but in the case of slightly damaged cars, you really do have to see them for yourselves. Stop out to Walzer Mazda, Nissan, Honda, and Subaru just south of the Burnsville Mall on Buck Hill Road, if you really want to, you can tell them Tom sent you, but that sounds kind of dumb. Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt then talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. <laughs> it's been good, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's been good. And how do they contact you? And, uh, e- either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. Pardon me. Sorry, sorry. We are back, ladies and gentlemen, little Rolling Stones to bring us back. She's who's like a rainbow. You. Uh, a, oh, here we go. It's one of those songs that just kind of—I don't know. I'm trying to avoid this cold weather. I'm trying to get out of this funk. Yeah. Indeed, passing a memoir of love and death. 
Michael Corda, our special guest, it was a warm April in Pleasant Valley when Margaret Corda, normally a fearless horsewoman, dropped her horse whip while she was riding. Such a mild slip was easy to ignore, but when other troubling symptoms accumulated, she confided to her husband, Michael, I think something is serious is wrong with me. Michael, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Boy, I tell you, it's uh, quite the story, Michael, and my wife and daughter are here, Cassie's here, so if you got them crying by the end of the interview, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> well, it is, you know, uh, it's very hard to um, tell the story of some, some of the death of somebody you love, yes. but I, I wanted to tell it both as a medical story, um, which is important, um, and as a personal story, because Margaret was um, an extraordinary person in her own right, and finally, I wanted to tell it because, although all of us know the many defects of our healthcare system and its problems and oh. its costs, yeah. um, yep. the striking thing is that in the year of Margaret's illness, uh, between her diagnosis and her death, um, everybody that we encountered um, was caring, efficient, effective, um, and, um, and really not only knew what they were doing, but tried their very best to make a very difficult situation better. And I thought somebody should say that. You know, of course there are faults in, the, in our healthcare system, and we all know that, and we know what they are. But the, the, the level of, of, of care, and more important, the level of caring, is quite remarkable. Good. Well, that's wonderful to hear it. Yeah. To tell you the truth, well, just about, there's a doctor sitting just to my right, so I have to be nice to him, Michael. But, you know. <laughs> but, no, I, I have found doctors are very, very caring people. They actually, uh, I got to tell you, every doctor I've ever met, I think, has been that way. Really, yeah. really decent. Except for Ralph. Yeah, the it, one it, 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 I mean, uh, it, it was remarkable enough, but it was also pronounced enough that I really wanted to work that into a book, and it's one of the reasons that I wrote the book. Um, I was particularly struck in Margaret's case. She had a uh, metastatic melanoma brain tumor, um, about which there is very seldom any good news. Um, And um, uh, she had two brain surgeries and gamma knife radiation, um, all of them performed by the most wonderful neurosurgeon, um, who was very caring. And eventually there was no option um, because she wanted to die at home in her own bed um, surrounded by her own cats um, but to have home hospice care and I was so struck and I make a very major point of this in my book Posse by how very good that care was Um, it was amazing Um, and it's not a question you know the other thing is it's not a question of, of money uh, Margaret and I were both of Medicare age. Uh, mm-hmm. Medicare paid the vast proportion of what all of that cost. So, you know, people weren't being caring um, because of what they would be paid. They were being caring because they genuinely were that. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and I thought somebody should make a point of that in a book because we're apt to forget it. No, I think you're absolutely right, Michael. I think it's great that you've done this. I, I have to ask you a question because I, you know, I, I wonder uh, after reading the story, and then Catherine and I last night, my wife is is here, 
Hello. And last night we watched the art of driving or the art of racing in the rain, which is a very very sad story about a man whose wife dies. Of and a brain tumor. So Catherine finally stopped crying sometime about ten minutes ago after last night. <laughs> it was just that kind of deal. But uh, Michael, h- how do you? How did? Like when you came home, did did Margaret have a funeral? Uh, she had a funeral service. A service. Um, okay. And then um, I, I, I uh, she was cremated, which is what she wanted. And, right. Uh, and then um, I, I had a big um, uh, memorial uh, in her favorite field. She was a very successful um, and um, lifelong um, horsewoman. Um, and her favorite field was she always called a tribute to the movie her field of dreams. Um, and it had all the various jumps that she wanted to work her horses over, you know, stone stone walls, um, a water jump, all of those things. Mm-hmm. And so I, I I buried her ashes there and put up a memorial stone and held, which I think she would have liked, a big party for about 200 people under a tent, catered lunch, uh, uh, music with all her favorite songs. Um, and, uh, and that's, how we held the memorial. We we tried to to do all the things that she would have loved, um, and that she would have loved to have heard, and that she would have loved to have eaten, and placed her in the field that she loved best um, on our farm. Um, and I'm very much in favor of that. I I, I, I think that um, it, it's it's that having the memorial service that marks the event. But does it in a, a, a in an upbeat, yeah, cheerful, yeah. targeted way? Right? Well, yeah. but in an upbeat and positive way, um, is is good for everybody. You know, Michael, just kind of a learning experience. I have to ask you a question. If you don't want to answer the question, I understand. But try to learn something um, from experience here. So it it's over. The memorial service is over. All your friends have gone home, Michael. You go back home and you realize it really is over now. Um, yes. What does that feel like, Michael? It's tough. Yeah. Uh, it's tough, tough as being the one who dies. But, um, right, but right. It's, it's, t- it's tough um, uh, feeling to your left. In my case, it's doubly tough because I've got four of Margaret's horses to look after, oh, and I've yeah. got an enormous 18th century house, um, which feels very empty when it's empty, if you see what I mean, because there's more of it. Um, uh but it's something that you gradually have to get used to, and I, I, I think you're right that that moment, um, it, when you realize that uh, that he or she is never coming back, mm-hmm. um, is very, very difficult. God, um, I have to believe it's amazing. And your people react in different ways. I was very reluctant to get rid of all of Margaret's clothes, um, and then I one one day I woke up and said to myself, "But this is nuts." You know, I mean, we have a like 45 years worth of Margaret's clothes and closet after closet after closet. Um, Does it make any sense to keep them? She's not going to come back and wear them. Why why not give them to people who will wear them? Um, So you you take it step by step. Um, uh, I know people, for example, who can't face the whole clothing issue and still have all the clothes and all the shoes that belong to their late spouse Mm. 10, 10, 12 years after the spouse's death. 
I'm, I'm not denigrating that. It's just, right. It, no, it, I understand. It's a perfectly justifiable decision. Um, but, but again and again, when you find yourself alone, you're, you're faced with, with questions like that. Um, and you just have to sort of um, settle down and decide to continue on with your life for so long as you have it. Um, uh, uh, it takes a while. I could see that happening. It just, um, I've never had the opportunity to ask anybody that uh, d- directly because, you know, if you're at the, the function or whatever, you don't want to walk up to the husband or wife and say, so how does this feel? And that's not the way I meant it, Michael. I just. Oh, that's, yeah, so, uh, but, you know, I mean, I mean your questions like that, so it's okay. But, 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 uh, but the other thing is that, I don't know about you, I, because I was older than Margaret and because I had two experiences with cancer myself as well mm. as a cardiac arrest, okay. um, which left me in a coma for quite some time, God. I always figured that I would be the first to go. So sure. everything that I did, all our financial arrangements, all the insurance, and, and the way I thought about the future, uh, always anticipated that I would die and that Margaret would live on a number of years after me. Uh, it had never occurred to me that the reverse would take place. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that, that, that's a very difficult um, um, fence to jump, as it were, um, because I had never, ever imagined um, living alone in the house. And all, all the arrangements I made were made with the thought that Margaret would continue to be here and I would be gone. Um, that turned out not to be the case. Yeah, I, I think people make these assumptions, uh, and and uh, it's it's difficult when the reality you face turns out to be quite different from what you'd expected. Is the book your way of telling the world how much you really loved Margaret? It is one way of doing it. Yes, mm-hmm. I, I mean it's not. I don't really need to tell the world how much I love. No, Margaret. no, I understand. I mean, but but, but I love but, hearing but, it, Michael. Yes, yeah. I try to fix a portrait of her in people's mind because she was a remarkable figure. Um, she won um, five or six, I can't remember which, uh, national uh, combined training championships, uh, the last one at the age of 66, which is simply amazing, because she was competing against people who were mostly in their late teens or their early 20s uh, on a national level and still won. Um, amazing. And she was uh, extraordinarily beautiful, a former fashion model. Mm-hmm. and. Um, always had perfect posture, which I don't. <laughs> so, so one of the things I miss and will go on missing is somebody saying to me, um, stand straight. <laughs> so, Michael, how, what does it tell you about yourself, the, the way you wrote the book, the book's out there, you're doing a tour right now? Uh, you're acknowledging your own strength, aren't you? I hope. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Um, uh, it... There are a, a, a lot of reasons for writing a book, and it, it's, of course, a very different kind of book from the one I usually write. The last book I wrote was about the, the, the British uh, retreat to Dunkirk. Mm-hmm. Um, history and biography have been what I mostly do. I had a very, I wrote a very big biography of Robert E. Lee. Thank goodness it isn't being published right at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's probably true, Michael. Yeah, that would, that'd be uncomfortable. <laughs> Ideal time to go out. And promote a biography of Robert E. Lee, but, but um, uh, and a big biography of Lawrence of Arabia. And so forth. But mm. this this is a book which is probably very good for me. 
uh, mind you, I don't believe that writing a book is a kind of catharsis. Um, writing a book about Margaret is not going to make me feel better about the fact that she's mm-hmm. dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that it's an opportunity for me to write a book which reveals something of my own feelings um, and is more personal than, say, a biography of Dwight D. Eisenhower, which I also wrote. Um, so it, 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 it's, all, it, it's, it's an attempt on my part to try and, and put into words um, the relationship that I had for 40 years with Margaret uh, on a very personal level. And I begin it on a very personal level when we first met and when we first made love. Um, uh, those are not easy things to write about, but I think they're good things to write about. I think revealing part of yourself and part of somebody that you love is a good thing to do, even if nobody else reads it. Well, I just think it's a situation where if there are other men or women in your position out there, they can go uh, on Amazon or wherever they go and, and get your book and go, I am not the only one that's been through this. I'm not alone in this. Michael Corda went through it. Several other people went through it. I think just the fact that they can hold a book in their hands and say, I am not alone in this. Michael did this, too, is huge, I think. I think, oh, I, I think it is. Many, many years ago, I wrote a book called Man to Man about my experience uh, with prostate, prostate cancer. Um, uh-huh. And and it was astonishing to me how many people came up to me and said, I'm so glad you wrote the book because I had that problem, I had that experience, yeah. and I was, wasn't able to share it with anybody, and it did me such a world of good to know that you'd had the same experience. Not that I handled it in any way better than anyone else might have, but, but the fact that you could speak openly about those issues um, was, was healing for a surprising number of people. And I think that you're right, that that's, that's one of the things that a book can do, is, is give people a kind of healing in their own experience. Yeah, I think it's true. Michael Corder, the book is called Passing a Memoir of Love and Death. A great salute to Margaret, Michael. Thank you so much for your time today. Very brave. And like I said, I think you help other people by doing this. So thank you. I hope so. And thank you for having me. Absolutely, sir. We will take a break. Be back in a couple minutes with the family. Tom Bernard here, and with me is the CEO of North American Banking Company, Michael Bilski. Tell me, Michael, I was reading on your website that one of your bankers has worked with a customer for more than 30 years. It's a long time for any business relationship. Is that common? Not only 30 years, but two generations. Our great client, Northland Fastening Systems. 30 years is definitely not common for a lot of bankers, but Brad has developed a relationship with that trusted customer that has allowed them to show steady growth every year they've been together. Building the relationship of trust is what we do best. It allows us to make quick deals that benefit them and all of our business customers. The cool thing is that it gives us a chance to be more than your banker, hopefully a partner, and maybe even a friend. I have never liked you, by the way. Why not bank with my banker, North American Banking Company, a better banking experience? Member FDIC, an equal housing lender. Thanks, friend. And you are? (laughs) Real nice. Chuck (laughs) Nabla. Chuck (laughs) Nabla. If you're one of those folks out there still putting up with contact lenses or dealing with glasses, think just for a moment, what would it be like to wake up to a clear morning and experience your day with all the freedom LASIK brings? Well, I'm living proof. That dream can come true. Tom Bernard here for Whiting Clinic LASIK and Cataract 
With the new year right around the corner, it's time to set your sights on 2020 vision. Get $500 off LASIK through the end of the year at Whiting Clinic. If you're like me, not a big fan of glasses and contacts, then it's time for you to find out if you're a candidate for LASIK. Call 855-554-2020 or visit whitingclinic.com for your free LASIK consultation. The great people at Whiting Clinic will take fantastic care of you, just like they did for me. Imagine 2020, buy 2020, and let 2020 be your best year yet with $500 off LASIK at Whiting Clinic. Offer expires December 31st, 2019. Both eyes only cannot be combined. Results may vary. I'm rocking out over here, can you tell? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No question about it. I thought Michael Corda did a great job. Michael Corda, by the way, if you've not heard of him, he is a very, very talented guy, very smart guy. He was the, what, editor-in-chief editor of Simon & Schuster. Yeah, yes. Simon & Schuster, yeah. So very, he probably very bright knows guy. how to construct a sentence, maybe. I just, I can't even imagine, and nobody can imagine what that's like. So it's all over. The party's over. She's been cremated. She's been, the ashes have been buried. You've had the party. Now you're at home by yourself, and you go, it really is over. I can't even imagine what that must feel like. I can see why people wouldn't get rid of clothes right away either. Because oh, just yeah. opening up those closets and having everything gone, yeah. that would be depressing. Mm-hmm. Regardless of how you approach it, you know, there's, there's sort of individual steps. And everybody yes. has to take those steps in a certain way. Mm-hmm. You know, I, Tom, when your mother passed, I said, it takes five years to get beyond yeah, that. It you takes five to me about that. years to get beyond that. And it's not so much that you're, you know, incapacitated or you're crying all the time or you're depressed no, all the whole time. No. But during that period of time, there's a healing process that you sure. go through that just takes time. And if, you, if you, you get rid of the clothes at five years, fine. If you get around one year, it's these individual steps that you're, you take. Writing a book, that can be a step. He says it's not a catharsis, but it's a way for him to sort of understand his feelings yeah. and try to yeah. sure. move beyond that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, when 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 Cassie died, it was like at least yeah. three years before I could even say his name without yeah, being right. like. Yeah. It was around for eighteen years. Yeah, so. I mean, it was eighteen years, and said a dog is your constant companion. Yep. It's like you know, yeah. you can have relatives or even a brother or a sister lives across the world who you never see, and mm-hmm. so it's kind of a bigger impact. Yeah, when when my Some, mom passed away, we well we went down to North Carolina, my sister and I, when she was in the hospital. And then when she passed away, the only thing I could think of, because she moved down there to take care of her mother, my grandmother, who's still alive. Right. She just turned 92. Point five. On yesterday. Or so Sunday. Six months, I'm sorry, Sunday. And um, uh, I just, I'm like, we have to get rid of mom's things, like, now while we're down here. No. Take, so we didn't yeah. leave it for my grandma to deal with because right. she's, you know, yeah, she shouldn't age, have so, to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was kind of weird. Just like all of a sudden, just okay, we got to get rid of this and this and donate this, and you know, it was just bizarre. Mm. But we had to do it. You got to do it. So I just kind of <laughs> shut myself off emotionally and was like a robot that whole week. Yeah, you can't think of it as personal items. You just have to think of it as stuff. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it makes it easier. Yeah, because I was yeah. like, I don't want to get rid of this. We, my sister and I, did keep some things sure. for ourselves, but my yeah. mom, my mom has been slowly giving every time we come down there, trying to give you more and more things. Well, and, <laughs> it was you know. when we were talking about airlines. I went to uh, North Carolina last month while everyone was in Nashville, and I had to spend thirty dollars to bring a carry or a checked bag there and thirty dollars back. 
But everyone's like, well, you're only gone for four days. Why can't you just check a bag? I said, trust me. Every time I go down to North Carolina, my grandma gives me stuff. Right. She'll have me walk around the house and say, what would you like when I die? And she'll oh, put your, God, I hate that. She'll put your initials on the back of it with a sticker. Of course. Oh, I think my sister's already done that. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about when my mother died? Mm. I think there was like a wire hanger left. That was about it. No, there's a whole box of stuff that you won't go through. There is. Yeah, Vicky brought you a whole. Box I don't even know that. Stuff. Yeah, but uh, I went through when I when I received the, the effects of my mother from my sister who cleared out the trailer that my mother was living in. You know, it was hard to go through that box. You're mm-hmm. not going through that box. I have. I can understand because it's not. I didn't even think, know it you existed. Think that, you got movie was bad. You know, you ain't seen bad until you see some of those things. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, that. yeah. No. I would imagine it's true. But then you look at the other side of it. When children die, it's even worse. Oh. Oh. Had no chance at life whatsoever, and they die. I, I don't. Oh, God. I, I don't know who I heard this from. Um, might have been Dr. Phil. <laughs> oh. Astute. The easiest, the, the best way, not easy, it's never easy, but the best way to get beyond a, the death of a loved one is to think about how your behavior, if you're falling apart, and depressed and everything, you know, and your life is falling apart, is that honoring the person that passed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to think of, you know, honoring that person's memory, and it's not by falling to pieces and mm-hmm. going into a dark place. It's, you know, they're gone. Mm-hmm. You have to honor their memory by carrying and, on. And your, and your sadness, or however you're acting, is a bit of narcissism because you're hurt. Right. Yeah, exactly. There's all of the loss. Which it, right. It's your deal that in, it's awful. It's a god-awful thing to have to go through and, you know, yeah. Yeah. One of the greatest things about my mother was she proved even in death that she wasn't racist <laughs> because the wall in which her crypt is, her body is yeah. placed, the entire wall, it's toots. And all Mexican people. It's <laughs> phenomenal. It is. Have you ever been back there? Yes. Years later? Of course I have. It's all Mexican citizens buried with my mother. She's buried in a Catholic cemetery. Yeah. I didn't like even know there I didn't even know Catholic there were so many people there segregated are. cemeteries. Yeah, all the Catholics left are there's Mexican. A Jewish, there's true. a Jewish cemetery, there's a Catholic it, yeah. cemetery. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely. amazing. Yeah. Where, where is where is there segregated what's that all about? It makes no sense. Because I guess there's consecrated is a religious ground thing, or something ultimately. Yeah. yeah. I mean like an atheist probably isn't going to care what happens to them when they're dead, so what do you think? Forty seconds religious people. What? That's where it is, 42nd Chicago, isn't it? The That's Catholic the, one? Yeah, yeah, cemetery. Yeah. I should get over there and one the, of these days again. I, and the I Jewish one it. isn't that far away from that. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it. uh, it's, that's on like 54th or something yeah. like that. Something like that. I didn't know there was a Jewish cemetery until well, we went to a Jewish... Well, Forest, Lawn, Forest, Forest Lawn in L.A. and Mount Sinai, they're, they're segregated. Yeah. You know, but I, the, the Christian and Jewish cemeteries, maybe Muslim cemeteries, that segregation, I can, I can kind of see that people may want that. But you know, I to to then break it down. Oh, what, is there a Sunni? Is, is there a Sunni and a probably, Shia? Probably, probably true. So you're, break, you're, you're breaking it down now a little bit more than you need to. <laughs> probably true. What are you going to do? Segregated some, even in death. Some great, <laughs> some great epitaphs though out there. Uh, was it Jim McMahon said when he dies on his tombstone he wants to say what the hell are you looking at yeah. <laughs> on his Those tombstone i want mine that says i'm reincarnating i'll be right back don't touch my stuff don't touch my stuff i'll be right back 
All right, to change the subject a bit, let's launch into, because I'm looking at a picture right now, we are a couple of weeks away, no, not even, 10, 10 days out from the release of Frozen 2. Mm-hmm. You, I cannot believe the promotion that this movie's getting. Like I, I said, bananas. Go- Holy God. The other day that have Frozen 2 stickers on them. <laughs> Frozen <laughs> 2 bananas. How does bananas. <laughs> What? what? Yeah. Where? We, I bought Wherever the bananas, and I'm like, oh, they're hilarious. frozen bananas. That, mean, that makes them better, apparently. Oh, oh yeah. This? this is a high That's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Wow. frozen two stickers on oh, yeah. every banana. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah, like Fawn's school has a book fair thing where it's like, you know, you buy the books and a percent of the proceeds mm-hmm. go to the school and whatever. And it was like, with every order, free frozen two stickers. It's just Aww. like, a, but it's wow. like, why are they doing all this? Target is just it's, it's like, loaded with frozen. Oh, God, they don't need oh, yeah. to. They don't need to. Yeah. Everyone saw Frozen 1, and every child was obsessed it's with it for three years. But it's been like six years since that one I know, but out. everybody knows Frozen yeah. 2 no, is know. coming out. Like, why do you need it? It's like when you see McDonald's you, advertising. No, it's like everyone knows about McDonald's. Yeah, but you have a new crop of kids that are, yeah, you know, younger. And then the older kids that loved it are going to definitely see it, and that might renew their yeah. want of merchandise. Or and I do bananas? wonder. Like, like what? Let's uh, yeah, say Frozen no 2 bananas. Let's say. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want your kid to know That's that Frozen weird. 2 is coming out or you because can't. you have some... It's unavoidable. Exactly. Yeah. You don't want them to, but you can't do anything. You can't let them out of the house without them seeing it, yeah. and then they'll start pestering you to go see it. Oh, I know. So. Dan, uh. took, Dan took the kids to Target when we were <clears throat> oh, in God. Arizona, which I would never do. Ooh. I was like, why would you do that? No. Yeah, and Target he, is very, like, no, I, I banned corporate Andy. consumer. Yeah. yeah. I banned Andy HQ. from Target for four years. He was not allowed to go back with yeah. me. And he's like, we just go, he's like, we just walked past this giant display of Frozen everything. Oh, yeah. And he's like, I was distracting her, like, oh, look at the Look at the Cheetos. <laughs> look at that. Look at that lawnmower. Look at, like, just trying to have her look the other direction. They do that on purpose. Gotta put blinders on those kids. No, Andy was banned. I would not take him back to Target because he decided to hide in a clothing rack. Oh, yeah, in the clothing rack. I remember that. And he would not come out. And I was in a complete. I mean, that's back when Jacob Wetterling and yeah. all this yeah. stuff was happening. And well, I you, didn't know. yeah, I, I was like four. And you would not come out. You would not come out. I was like ready to shut the store down. Call. I was calling like nine one one, and then I heard her giggle because she had found you because she was oh, at that sight line, <laughs> so she could find you. And I was like, you are never coming back here. Uh, How about Andy oh, with Kathy? Catherine has a friend who has no legs, got cut off in a boating accident, and Andy spent the entire time when he was about three or four years old under the table looking for her legs. She <laughs> said that's that? very common. Oh, she yeah. was not worried about that at all. No, no, I wouldn't. she wasn't worried about it, but he was they, looking to find her. He yeah, did, said, did not kid, understand where her legs yeah, went. Yeah, kids, kids are like, are you sitting on your legs? Where are your legs? Right. They just can't understand. They can't. The concept of amputation yeah. is not no. something that they yeah. can comprehend. Oh, one thing, but you were asking about this earlier, Wrigley. Mr. Wrigley, who started the Chewing Gum Company, was riding a train with his friend down the East Coast, and a Wrigley's gum commercial came on. Uh, not a gum commercial, but a, but a billboard came up with Wrigley's mm-hmm. gum on it, right? And his friend looked at him and said, why do you bother to advertise? Everybody knows about Wrigley gum, and why do you even bother to advertise? And Mr. Wrigley said, what do you think would happen to this train if the engineer took his foot off the accelerator? Yeah. And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, 
what would happen to the train? He said it would slow down and stop eventually. And he goes, same thing with my gum and advertising. Yeah. <laughs> it was very smart. I mean, that's very, very smart. All I know is I'm taking Dave to go see Frozen 2 for his birthday because oh, it opens on his birthday. Oh, really? We're taking Fawn for her half birthday because her half birthday is the 26th. But I think we're going to take her the day it opens because... And it's going to have some competition because that's the same day, I believe, the Mr. Rogers movie yeah. oh, yeah. comes out, too. But that's a different... Uh, but that's, like, oh, not kids. Be my neighbor. Is that... As so it'll be interesting to see what the box office is for that. Yeah. Yeah. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood is the name of that movie, right? Yeah, I believe so. Tom Hanks, a perfect guy to play that role. Yeah, yes. I love Tom perfect. Hanks. I see him I'm doing that. Perfect guy mm-hmm. to play that role. He's my favorite actor. I don't yeah. know. Why. They say he's a damn nice guy. Everybody I know that's ever worked with him just loves the guy. He has an Instagram, and I follow him on Instagram. And most of his posts are like a random glove in the street, and he'll take a picture and be like, "Anyone lose a glove?" <laughs> <laughs> like, Anyone what? lose a glove? Yes, like, that's barely. so funny. You have no idea how many shoes I've taken photos of shoes. Just like you're walking down the streets of Manhattan. There will be a shoe up on a windowsill. Oh, sure. <laughs> it's like, what? Well, <laughs> Why? Where were we the other night? Where? We, we, where were One we shoe. the other night? There was a bus bench that had a pair of shoes, a backpack, and some, like, poopy shorts. Well, that's homeless people. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know, but why would you leave it all? Why would you leave your shoes on a bus bench? Maybe the poop got down there. Mm. Well, maybe. Maybe the pooped know. in his shoes. <laughs> Maybe. There is an outside chance. That's the possibility oh, that we've that We've got a happened. guest, and we're talking about this stuff. Oh, oh, it's fine. we got two, two minutes left. Well, actually, we could break in this segment. We don't need to go the whole 15. I imagine that is probably true. So That's what we're going to do is take a break, be right much. back with a special guest right after this with the family. Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. Right now, Sabre and Bryant are teaming up to offer 0% financing for 36 months when you buy a new Bryant furnace. This is the perfect time to replace your old furnace with a new trouble-free, energy-efficient furnace from Sabre. And when you buy Bryant equipment, you're getting one of the most trusted names in the industry. This 0% offer is available for a limited time. Call Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning to find out more, and please tell them that Tom sent you. Saber and Bryant, whatever it takes. It's Tom, and I'm thrilled to let you know that for a very limited time, the ultimate weight loss program powered by Nutmos is having an early holiday sale. Well, you'll receive 20 to 30% off the cost of the program. Shed those unwanted pounds and look great before the holidays get here. Lose 20 pounds or more. Consumer guarantee. See website for details, ultimatewl.com. Ultimate's plan is unlike any other weight loss program out there. With over 1 million pounds lost to date, and clients like me will tell you that this is a weight loss program that works. This plan is customized for each individual person, and the Ultimate Weight Loss staff will be there for you every step of the way. They help me change my life, and they can help you too. Start to live your healthiest life and schedule an immediate consultation in their new Edina location or Plymouth with expanded hours. And look great for the holidays. Sale ends Saturday, November 9th. Call now and save. 763-333-7337. Money, it's a hit. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back. The book, From Willard Straight to Wall Street, a memoir. Thomas W. Jones, how are you, sir? Good, thank you, Tom. 
Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely great having you on. In stark and compelling prose, Thomas W. Jones tells his story as a uh, campus revolutionary who led an armed revolt at Cornell University in 1969, then altered his course over the next 50 years to become a powerful leader in the financial industry, including high-level positions at John Hancock, TIAA, Kreft, CREF, a city group as well. uh, Wall Street plunged into its darkest hour. Um, God, what a story this is, Thomas. What a life you've had. It's been interesting. (laughs) (laughs) It's been interesting. Yes, I would imagine it probably has been pretty interesting. You know, I'm really, really glad you're on, Thomas, because you and I are probably about the same age, same ballpark anyway. Um, And people ask me about this, this, uh, and it's pretty much hatred at this point, people hating one another over their political views and people can't agree on anything and the cancel culture and it's not a problem destroying someone's life if they don't agree with you or whatever. And people, younger people ask me about it all the time. And I said, well, my neighborhood burned to the ground in 1967. It was burned down North Minneapolis. They burned Plymouth Avenue down and so many other neighborhoods in America. I think we do have to go back that far to find that kind of anger, don't we? We do. And, uh, Tom, one of the reasons I wrote my book, one of my motivations, is to tell this positive story of how far our country has come. I think my life is a microcosm of mm-hmm. America's racial journey in the last 50 years. I mean, this country has changed so much that if you had described it in 1969, most people would have said that's not possible. Right. That degree of change is not possible. But we did it, and instead of being proud of what we've accomplished, we're kind of at each other's throats. Everything is interpreted negatively. Uh, we're angry. And I wrote my book in part to say we've got a really positive story in this country, and we should be very proud of it even as we acknowledge that we still have a ways to go with yeah. our race relations. I agree but completely. You know, I, I, I'll be honest with you, and I'm very serious about this, Thomas, that uh, we need more voices like yours because I, I, you know, I grew up in the inner city, grew up in a very poor neighborhood. Uh, I Everybody was treated the same in my neighborhood. We just all kind of ran together. We all went to school together. We all played together, the whole situation. But this is just my observation, Thomas, and tell me what your take is on this. Because you're an African-American man, right? Yes, that's correct. That's correct. Okay. How is it that young white women know more about black people than you do? (laughs) Because apparently they think they do. (laughs) What is that, Thomas? What do you think that is? Well, I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, it's just... uh, What I'm saying, Thomas, is that everybody in America now knows what black people want. And I, I just don't get that. Don't you? Wouldn't you just want to get out of the way and let black people do what they want to do? Right? I mean, let them achieve. You don't need your help. Just get out of the way. Right? Well, one of the things that's happened in our country is that voices are really amplified by social media. Oh God, yes. Yes, and and that means that voices that don't really understand historical context and don't really understand the path of progress that's been achieved, these voices that have limited perspective end up being amplified, often only because they're the kind of people that spend lots of time on social media and want to be influencers. 
So, so we're kind of in a box in our country, in part because the conversation is being dominated by people who are not necessarily uh, particularly knowledgeable uh, about our history and our current conditions. Right. I think that's a great point. I think it's a really, really good point. What was it like, if you don't mind me asking, to be a black man on the, on the campus of Cornell University in 1969 anyway? I mean, how did that feel? First of all, where did you grow up, Thomas? Primarily in New York City. Oh, you did? Okay. Uh, Yeah. And in the 50s, early 60s, I went to Cornell in 1965. If you were going to be a young black guy in America, uh, New York City was a pretty good place to be. Yeah, I can see Uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. In the context, New York was pretty open, pretty integrated. I never had any harsh, negative racial experiences while I was growing up. So I was fortunate. I think that's terrific, by the way, that you even talk about that, because I think many of you... Now, let me say this. Yes, sir. When even my parents were from the South, and so when we would travel to visit relatives in Virginia and North Carolina, my dad would always ask, before he would purchase gas, he would always ask, were we allowed to use the restrooms? Oh, yeah. Because the, the Jim Crow laws, you know... Um, whites only and so on, that was still in force at that time. So so I had visibility into that world, but I didn't have to live in that world. Yeah, that makes When sense. I went to Cornell, I was, you know, I was somebody, I felt like I had died and gone to heaven. <laughs> I mean, this is the most beautiful campus right. in the world. I just, I just loved everything about it, Tom. But, I soon discovered that many of the other black students didn't have the same kind of positive interracial experiences that I had been blessed with. Okay. And then as I dug into really learning about American history, you know, I came around to understanding that their fight and their experiences had to also be my fight, even though they weren't my personal experiences. Yeah, I could see so that. So that's a complicated way of saying I loved Cornell, but, you know, I had to fight this broader battle. Do you think there's a lot of fighting going on right now between all people? I, I uh, It seems to me as I, I just I stand back and look at all of this, Thomas, that people want to pick fights they want to be hurt they want to be upset i'm talking about all people i'm not talking about any particular skin color or gender or orientation or the rest of it it just seems to me that people want to be upset they want to be hurt so they can claim to be victims why does what's with this victim culture everybody wants to be a victim now and i'm talking about everybody yeah and and i i I get your point and it happens uh on all sides of the racial divide. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I've had uh, you know black students at Cornell demonstrate against me uh, <laughs> because they have come to conclude that I'm not angry enough. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and so, and, and so that's one of the reasons I want to raise my voice to say... Uh, let's have a dialogue on a higher level here. Let's recognize what's positive in our country. Uh, let's recognize 
uh, how much we have accomplished together, even as we acknowledge that we still have a ways to go. I just I, I, I feel a need to project that voice and to to try to make a positive contribution to the dialogue in the country. I think that's. I think people of goodwill can make a difference. I think you're absolutely right. I love the fact that you've you've taken this position that you just want to show people. We are not all victims. We can all work together. Very quickly, 60 seconds, I will tell you, as I I said, I grew up in the inner city. So I've been around all different kinds of people my entire life. And I have to be honest with you, I have have gotten in arguments with, with, uh, I guess, some white people but as far as being i've I've never even been in an argument with a black person it's not because i avoid arguing with them it just was never a reason for it to happen we've always it always there was this nice relationship like i said we hung out we went to school we did whatever i've never had the experience that these people talk about where whites and blacks were treated differently in my neighborhood they really weren't now i suppose in individual houses thomas yes it did happen in individual houses but not in the neighborhood so much and that was night in the 1950s and 60s that was a long time ago well i try to be cognizant uh that the american story is complex and multi-dimensional yeah so there are yeah. positive stories like you're describing and similar to 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 my childhood experiences and i also recognize the horrifically negative experiences that happened in various parts of america's sure. history mm-hmm. but even in the darkest hours i know history well enough to know uh, that even during slavery, there were whites of goodwill and good conscience who were leading the abolitionist movement. And every generation, there have been many, many, many white people who sided with trying to provide justice and equality to African Americans. And in every generation, that's been the story. And so one of my messages is simply... You know, let's recognize this isn't condemnation of one race and praise of another race. It's the story has to be articulated in its subtlety and granularity and recognize there's a lot of good. um, uh, There's a lot of good to be praised, even in the historical record of, uh, you know, the the white population uh, having helped Americans, African-Americans to progress to the point where we are today. So I, I, I want to recognize that as much as I recognize the horrific cost imposed by slavery and the brutality, uh, you know, of, of, of that, uh, of that servitude. Thomas, do you have any interest in running for president? <laughs> <laughs> I probably I probably couldn't survive in this media environment. Uh, <laughs> it's probably true, Thomas. Yeah, who would want to? Thomas, <laughs> you know, I hear a lot, and you probably heard this before, but I was a very young boy. I might have just become a teenager. When I heard Martin Luther King Jr. say, judge people not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, that has been my my basically my stolen slogan, I guess, all these years. Nobody ever quotes that any longer. I, you don't hear that any longer. 
I quoted it on Twitter. You did? Yeah. There was some sort of Twitter argument Good. going on, and I quoted that, and, and I got such backlash. Oh, yeah, drag Martin Luther King. Oh, that old argument. <laughs> oh, oh, that, that old, old argument. I'm like, oh, okay. what? See, this is what I'm talking about, Thomas. Yeah. That old <laughs> argument of Martin Luther King yeah. Jr. It's like, oh, okay. what argument? I yeah. don't, didn't I don't want get to hear it, Thomas. it. Did not want to hear it. I don't get it. I really don't. Thomas, what are we going to do? Uh, it's actually uh, one of the themes in my book, and uh, uh, I articulated that in the context of that con. You know, when the black students at Cornell demonstrated against me in 1997 <laughs> because I had created a prize to honor the white president of Cornell who had been forced to resign mm. in 1969 because of the demonstration, you know, the guns at Cornell. But I knew he was a good person. He was a good person um, and uh, had greatly expanded black enrollment at Cornell and was just the victim of all the anger of the faculty and right. the alumni and the trustees. So I wanted to honor him. Um, and so black students dem- demonstrated against me, called me Uncle Tom Jones and so on and so <laughs> oh forth. It's and Thomas. the point I made about it in the book, when I talked about it in, in the book, I said, you know, the point here is that each of us has to make moral decisions with how we conduct our lives. And one of the moral decisions I made was to try to embrace Martin Luther King's creed, which is let's choose our friends and associates based on the content of their character yep. rather than the color of their skin. So I very much embrace, you know, uh, you're bringing that into the dialogue. Our, our country would be well served uh, by talking about that a bit more. Yes. You know, I tell you, Thomas, we uh, I do a morning show. And by the way, if you have time, I would love to book you on the morning show as well. It's a very highly rated morning show. And I would love to have you on to talk to that audience as well. There's a young man. Well, he's not a young man anymore. He was when I met him 46 years ago. Philip Wise uh, is one of my best friends in the world. I mean, he's nuts. Don't get me wrong because, you know, one of those. Because he's your friend. Because he's my friend. He's crazy. (laughs) But just and Thomas, I didn't know you were going to be on this show today. But just this morning on our show, I said, Philip, I'd like to show people something. What do you think of me, Philip? He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, what do you think of me as a person? And he goes, well, you know, I love you, man. And I said, well, I love you too, Philip. When's the last time you heard a black man and a white man tell each other they loved one another on a radio show or anywhere? And it's not That's made nice. up. And That's it's not phony. Yeah. It's true. It's really love. Because he is a wonderful, wonderful man who cares about me deeply. I care about him deeply. And there needs to be a lot more of that. I agree. Let's Thanks get it for done. bringing that onto the airwaves. Oh, God, yes, it's terrific. Thomas, I will reach out again. I'd love to have you on the morning show as well to talk about uh, From Willard Straight to Wall Street, a memoir, because I do want to talk to you more about your Wall Street uh, experience as well. Thomas, Thomas, you're not getting rid of me, man. Thank you, Tom. Thank I enjoyed chatting with you. I, I had a ball. Thank you, sir. Thomas W. Jones from Willard Straight to Wall Street, a memoir. We'll get him booked on the morning show. We'll talk to you tomorrow with the family. <laughs> Thank you.